Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 31. This is the beginning of the story of the grassy knoll and all the mystery that surrounds it. To be honest with you, doing an episode or episodes on the grassy knoll is really a thrilling experience if you are into the JFK assassination story. And for me, it's also a little bit intimidating. It's not that the topic itself is so technical or complex, at least what we know about it. It's really about doing justice to what the grassy knoll represents in the context of this story and to the overall narrative that is the JFK assassination. Really, though, it's an iconic moniker for so many other things in our world and what we as a nation and really as a world have gone through in the past 60 years or so. And I know as a listener, you have certain expectations as well. The Grassy Knoll has been more widely publicized than almost any part of the assassination story. And for that reason, so many people are interested in this topic. Almost everyone has certain things that stand out in their own mind, and folks expect those things to be included in the conversation. I hope I don't disappoint you in that regard, and I hope we hit all of the most important and relevant points, and then some. As I prepared to put this series of episodes together, it was very clear to me that there was no way we were going to pack it all into just one episode. My delivery style just isn't conducive to that. So hang on for a series of episodes that, if nothing else, will start to take us down into the realm of the mysterious when it comes to the JFK assassination. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 31. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I like to use all sorts of analogies and phrases to make my point. You've heard your share of that dog don't hunt and so on. But for this series of episodes, all I have to do is borrow an age old tried and true analogy, one that everyone knows. And that is where there is smoke, there is fire. It's a wonderful analogy that's become one of the most popular of all time. It's popular because it's, for the most part, true. In the case of the grassy knoll, there was definitely smoke. Real smoke, actually. So the real question is, where was the fire? We'll get to that. But before we do, we need to set the stage a bit for what is to come in this group of episodes. The mystery of it all came occasionally in bits and pieces in those first 30 episodes. Now, the mystery is about to accelerate. In these episodes about the grassy knoll, there is clear evidence of foul play in some way, and yet, like a disappearing magic act, one where the egg or the scarf is gone before your eyes, there is a missing piece of evidence the evidence that acts as the glue that ties it all together and spells conspiracy. 
You see, the very nature of the term grassy knoll in the context of the JFK assassination, really, it's a proxy for conspiracy. If just one gunman set up on the sixth floor in the sniper's nest and fired all of the shots, well then, the government's Warren Commission narrative is true and everything else is false. Let's just finish this podcast right here, right now, and go home and turn the QVC channel on and start Christmas shopping in July. On the other hand, even if just one shot came from somewhere else, then the government's narrative is false and a conspiracy did exist. Only one of these hypotheses can be true. They are, by definition, mutually exclusive. It is one or the other, and not both. There is considerable evidence that you are going to hear in the next few episodes. Evidence around the smoke. Smoke that is so thick that no one in their right mind would believe it was started by anything but a fire. Yet, where are the flames? Over the years, in my own wander around the topic of the JFK assassination, I have always migrated back to the idea that the more you heard witness testimony that was taken as close as possible to the moment of the shooting was better, and surely more reliable. It was a pure version of what they saw or thought, and it was taken down right at that very moment, or close thereto, without the benefit or the distraction or the recreation that sometimes occurs when witnesses hear the words and thoughts of others afterward and begin to think about things. In the case of many of these witnesses that you will hear in these upcoming episodes, well, some of them did give official testimony, and certainly most of them gave official affidavits. But most were ignored by the Warren Commission or discredited, either overtly or subtly. But wait, there is more testimony than just that. There is also the availability of unsworn testimony that was independently taken. It came in many forms. Sometimes it was just a reporter from WFAA in Dallas taking the witness aside sometimes on the day of the assassination, and asking them what they saw. You've heard some of that already on earlier episodes. You'll hear more of that in the rest of these Grassy Knoll episodes to come. For others, it took a visit from Mark Lane to interview them under the context that the Warren Commission had simply not represented what they said in an accurate way, or omitted all or parts of what they said. Again, in my now familiar litany, that was done for the good of the official narrative. For still others, it was a witness interview that was necessary because the governmental investigative agencies had completely neglected and ignored them. They had ignored them in all reality in the hope that no one else would want to speak to these particular witnesses. How wrong was the government on that one? It's hard to keep an untruth in check. You might have guessed this next part already. People who saw what we were about to present, well, most of them weren't interviewed by the Warren Commission. And if they were, they were deftly handled. Many of them were interviewed by the FBI, but by the now familiar process employed by both the FBI and other investigating agencies, such as the Secret Service, 
And then finally, the Warren Commission itself, as I keep saying, they were left out of the official narrative or downright discounted or discredited in various ways. In that vein, I sometimes wonder how hard it must have been for the dutiful FBI agent in the field, one who quickly got the message around the narrative and the official government objective, yet was still charged with interviewing the witnesses and telling the truth. The dilemma that they faced. It's evident in the various ways the testimony was taken, how they likely accepted that mission. Some didn't flinch. They reported back exactly what they heard and found. Others, well, I'm not so sure of that. And the conflicts between what witnesses would say about their own previously taken word would solidify that. I'm just saying. Probably those particular agents slept well, too, but for a different reason. Some people keep their head low and try to stay out of trouble. That goes for the investigators, too. Up to now, in the first 30 episodes, you've seen quite a few examples of where that circumstance has occurred. This group of episodes will take it to a new level. When we are done with this set of episodes, the strings that we begin to pull, the cloth that begins to unravel, will require more and deeper analysis, and we will go there too, as we will need to continue to seek and find the evidence that is necessary for you, the jury, to understand this case. One thing that this set of episodes may very well provide is enough evidence to bring into your own mind culpability in the cover-up, an indictment of sorts against the investigating agencies for not pursuing the truth about some of these obvious dogs that were left to lie silently on the ground. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, but my point is that if there is one aspect of the evidence that is clear it's that they either deliberately ignored or incompetently missed some of the most obvious elements of evidence and witness testimony. Testimony and evidence regarding matters that clearly contradicted the official narrative. If it wasn't deliberately ignored, then incompetence was taken to a level not ever seen before in a case of such national significance. So, in my simple mind, that's why I tend to believe it just wasn't incompetence. We'll debate this more, but it's time for me to stop beating around the bush and just get to it. You have heard so much in the way of physical description within Dealey Plaza already in these first 30 episodes. Some of you may have developed a familiarity that is unusual for a place that you have never seen. And chances are, if you are on episode 31, you have already looked up a map of Dealey Plaza. They are abundant on the internet. And really, there is nothing like being there in person. I hope you get a chance to go someday if you haven't been there already. The experience, well, it's like a near blind man putting on glasses. It all comes into focus and perspective. But still, for our purposes today, it's worth quickly restating what the grassy knoll is. The grassy knoll is a small, sloping, grass-covered hill inside the plaza that was above Kennedy and to his right, that is to the west and the north, during the motorcade's progression down Elm Street and during the assassination sequence. 
with that juxtaposition description just being prior to the final and fatal headshot. Again, as the motorcade made its way down Elm Street, this North Grassy Knoll, and there is a second Grassy Knoll, by the way, in Dealey Plaza, this Grassy Knoll is adjacent to the Texas School Book Depository Building along the Elm Street abutment and Side Street to the northeast. Its lower and southern edge borders a sidewalk which abuts against Elm Street. To the north and east of the Grassy Knoll is a parking lot, and it's also where the Union Tower was located, a position that Lee Bowers was in, and you will hear from him shortly in one of the upcoming episodes. Ah, and there is the fence, the famous picket fence which sits atop the knoll and runs for a distance in a jagged path that follows the contour of the knoll itself and heading west to where the knoll tails off and meets the underpass. There is also a railroad bridge atop the triple underpass that is an important reference. The triple underpass is west of the grassy knoll. The railroad bridge runs over the top of three roads that all converge right there, and then the three roads run parallel to each other as they pass under the railroad bridge. The three streets are, of course, Commerce, Main, and Elm Streets. Before we start to talk to witnesses, I have to take us on a very small wander. Let's engage in a little bit of pure history about where the term grassy knoll actually came from. In an earlier episode, we mentioned that the coining of this phrase was attributable to Merriman Smith from the UPI, and that's true. But the details around it and his winning that contest, so to speak, his being coined the father of the phrase, those details are interesting and they are a little like the invention of the telephone and the story of Alexander Graham Bell versus Elisha Gray. And who got to the patent office first that day in 1876? Do any of you remember Elisha Gray? See, I'm just saying, nobody remembers the loser in the Super Bowl unless it's your team that lost. By the way, that whole story around Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray is a momentous part of our own history. That was the start of the cell phone in your hand. No, not wireless technology, but what preceded it and you know made the idea possible in the minds of those who came after. It's worth a side wander, by the way. But we'll stick to the JFK story for now. By the way, though, Elisha Gray made out okay in the end. 70 patents in his lifetime, and he was the co-founder of the Western Electric Company. So, you see, we have a similar race to claim the phrase between Mr. Smith and a witness that you will hear from today, Mr. Bill Newman. Like Bell and Gray, there was a technical difference and distinction in what Newman said that actually disqualifies him from winning the prize. He never used the term grassy in front of the word null, and that is why he cannot claim the prize as having coined the phrase. You see, some researchers originally credited witness Bill Newman with the phrase, Newman, as you'll hear later in this series of episodes, appeared on WFAA-TV in Dallas about 15 to 20 minutes after the shooting, and in it, he made a statement that the shots came from behind him, saying it, in his own words, came from up on the mall or up on the knoll. So with the story of the runner-up out of the way, 
Let's listen to the details of how the phrase was born. We know these details thanks to research done by Gary Mack at the Sixth Floor Museum. As I said, the first use of the term really was by Merriman Smith of United Press International, or UPI. Mr. Smith was in the press pool car, which was, as you heard in prior episodes, about five or six cars behind the president's limousine. I guess, in some ways, Mr. Smith was a lucky guy that day, thanks to a long-standing gentleman's agreement with the other news service, AP, or Associated Press. The news services both agreed to alternate seats with the other competing wire service, and on that day, the UPI got the nod to be in the press car. And Mr. Smith's position in the car was overtly positioned to sit directly in front of the car's only radio telephone. Moments after the shooting occurred, and as the press car was heading toward the underpass, following the president on what had already become a race to Parkland Hospital, Smith picked up the radio telephone in the car and called the Dallas UPI office, which then sent out a dispatch at 1234, some four minutes after the shooting occurred. It said, very simply, Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas. And of course, the explosion of news bulletins that began to circulate all over the globe began with that short statement by Merriman Smith. Gary Mack would later get confirmation of that from an AM station in Anna, Illinois, of all places, WRAJAM. Don Michelle, who was the owner and manager of the station, had the presence of mind to save the UPI dispatches, thinking that, at some point, those dispatches would become valuable historical documents. And he was correct in his thinking about that. Later, he would place the pages on loan to the Sixth Floor Museum. Mr. Michelle provided the museum with many pages of those UPI dispatches that went out that day, and on one of them, sent almost exactly 25 minutes after the assassination, Mr. Smith reported, and I quote, Some of the Secret Service agents thought the gunfire was from an automatic weapon fired to the right rear of the president's car, probably from a grassy knoll to which police rushed. And there you go. That is the first official known use of the term grassy knoll. In those critical moments and hours after the assassination, there were but just a few references to the term grassy knoll, repeated by just a few other reporters for several hours after and only when it was first thought that the shots had come from the knoll. But when the official narrative began to take shape, quickly, and it was clear that shots had actually been fired from the school book depository, the reference to shots fired from that direction, the direction of the grassy knoll, along with the term itself, was curiously dropped from the references and the vernacular of the reporters at the moment. In a minute, though, you'll hear from Mary Woodward, one of those reporters who was right there in the middle of it and who also thought the shots came from the grassy knoll. What happened with her filed news report would add to the even greater sinister suspicions that began to mount almost immediately around what had happened that day in Dealey Plaza. Mary Woodward was a 22-year-old cub reporter for the Dallas Morning News. 
She was one of the few reporters in Dealey Plaza that day that wasn't working and was just there to see the president and his wife. In those days, female reporters didn't necessarily have the best assignments, and at the time, Mary was covering a segment of items deemed to be women's news. The offices of the Dallas Morning News, where Miss Woodward worked, were quite close to Dealey Plaza. In fact, out of the windows of some of the offices at the news, you could see the plaza. Mary may very well have been the closest person to the president at the moment the fatal shot was fired. It was either her or Charles Brem, as they were both very close, perhaps within 10 to 15 feet from the limousine. She had settled on watching the parade from the north side of Elm Street with three of her colleagues from the women's news section. Mary's eyes were fixed on the president throughout the entire shooting sequence, and when she saw the final shot strike his head, she knew he was dead. In fact, she exclaimed it right there, right away to her companions. She and the three ladies she was with quickly made their way back to the Dallas Morning News offices, where Mary would then try to explain to folks there what had happened, many of which did not yet know or understand the severity of the attack on the president. By all accounts, she was in a bit of hysterics at that moment, although she would later recall her own behavior and state of mind and say that it was quite rational under the circumstances. Nevertheless, Mary was given a tranquilizer by an office nurse in order to calm her nerves. She knew the president was dead. She had seen the damage done to his head, and she knew there was no way anyone would survive what had happened. She convinced the bosses that she should write an eyewitness account of it. They agreed, and then they ushered Mary into a quiet room where she sat by herself and wrote a short, eyewitness account of what she had seen that day in the plaza, and she got it ready for publication. It was a short time later that the official news came. The president was dead. The Dallas Morning News ran with her story and published it. But because the Dallas Morning News was a morning paper, Mary's account was not circulated until the next day, the next morning, November 23rd, the Saturday right after the assassination. It appeared on page three, not even on the front page. It was on the right-hand side of the paper below a large photo of the alleged assassin's view of Elm Street from that sixth-floor window of the Texas School Book Depository. On that same part of the paper, on the left-hand side of the page, there were photos of the sniper's nest and the entire building with another article entitled Kennedy Killer Hid in Area Used Little. It also had a picture of a floor plan showing the assassin's hideout. About two weeks later, on December 6th, she was interviewed by the FBI. The report filed by the FBI of that interview contains some consistencies, but it also contains some inconsistencies with her own news article. In regard to the source of the shots, the FBI report emphasizes that her first reaction was that the shots had been fired from above her head and possibly behind her. Mary indicated that initially she thought one or two shots might have come from the overpass, which was to her right. However, she had now come to the conclusion that she could not say where the shots had come from. 
Other than that, they had come from above her head. No reference is made in the report of the possibility of one or more shots coming from the grassy knoll or picket fence area, which would have been more consistent with Miss Woodward's initial reporting in her own article. Undoubtedly, the FBI, and it sounds like perhaps in this case, even her employer, were both delighted at her uncertain recollections that had begun to develop as early as December 6, 1963. You may be wondering why I'm telling you this story. Well, you'll understand as it progresses. Some researchers believe that it was these inconsistencies, along with the fact that she was a reporter, that compelled the FBI to let this dog lie still on the floor and choose to not call her to testify. In her Sixth Floor Museum interview in 2013, she would make reference to the fact that the Secret Service and the CIA were also present during her FBI interview. Again, isn't that enough to scare a 22-year-old just a bit? What was the CIA doing there? It was the first reference to the CIA being present in an assassination interview that I have seen. Maybe she was mistaken, but I don't think she was. By the way, none of the other three ladies with her were asked to file affidavits of what they saw, nor were they interviewed by the FBI or the Warren Commission, although one did provide a biographical interview to the Sixth Floor Museum in 2009. Actually, it was Mary's roommate. Again, it's almost inexcusable that Mary herself was not called as a witness for the Warren Commission, given that she may have been the closest spectator to the killing. And the other three were not even asked to make affidavits, nor did they come forward to do so, even after Police Chief Curry broadcast on television a plea to the citizens of Dallas to do so. I think it speaks of the horror and how afraid people who were close to it became, in a hurry, surrounding the death of the president. One fact that Mary remained steadfast and consistent about her whole life was that three and only three shots were fired. One, and then a pause, and then two almost simultaneously afterward. For reasons that are still heretofore unclear, her original version of that story appeared only once in the paper, the first edition. Yet the story itself was featured again. But then something happened when it was republished. The original version was subsequently edited to remove the reference on where the shots had come from. There are several JFK assassination researchers that contend that this was done upon a suggestion of the FBI to the editors of the Dallas Morning News. There are various stories about how the changes came about, the exact nature we may never know. But it's safe to say that in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, the press was conforming quite quickly to the narrative that the government was putting forth. Let's fast forward now to 1988. Mrs. Woodward participated in a special production that was being put together for the 25th anniversary of the assassination. It was being produced by the BBC, which, 
to her, was the gold standard in reporting. In that special, entitled The Men Who Killed Kennedy, Mrs. Woodward would rather clearly articulate that behind and to the right meant the grassy knoll. And she went on to say that at the time she wrote the article on the day of the assassination, that her reference strongly implied that shots might have come from somewhere other than the school book depository. And that may not have sat well with her managing editor and with local officials there in Dallas. Obviously, the idea of a shot from somewhere other than the depository implicated a second gunman, and thus a shooter conspiracy. There was only one acceptable theory, one gunman firing only from the school book depository. A few years later, Hugh Ainsworth, who worked at the Dallas Morning News at the time of the assassination and who was a principal reporter involved locally in many facets of the assassination reporting, he would later be hired by the Dallas Times-Herald and, along with Doug Beadle, would write a story that would try and explain away the comment that Mary had made in that first article on the day of the assassination. They themselves believed that the very beginning of the Grassy Knoll conspiracy theory emanated from her article, and they were not too apologetic about aiming the blame at her. And as some assassination researchers would say, without any documentation that Mary actually agreed with it at that time anyway. Ainsworth worked hard to get at the story around the assassination, and undoubtedly he was there in the thick of it. But listening to him in years later, it's clear that his view is heavily biased toward a no-conspiracy conclusion, and he has worked hard for a long time to espouse that theory, right or wrong. This was a chance to work his craft and advance the anti-conspiracy cause. Ainsworth and Beadle would say, and I quote from the 1980 article, The origins of the so-called Grassinol theory of a second gunman can be traced to the simple mistake of a Dallas morning news reporter out for lunch with her cohorts to watch the motorcade. When Kennedy was shot, she raced back to her office to file a tearful, horrified account of what she had seen. Gunfire, she wrote came over her right shoulder. The way she was facing, that would mean the shots would have come from the knoll. And when her friends saw the story, they rushed in to correct her. The story was corrected for later editions. In spite of affidavits to the contrary, attorney Mark Lane used the women's uncorrected account of the shooting to bolster his assertion that another gunman was involved. Now, fast forward another 25 years or so from Mary's interview, and about 33 years after the Ainsworth article, and Mrs. Woodward could be seen doing an in-person historical biography interview for the Sixth Street Museum, another very rare appearance by Mary. In that interview, done in 2013, she implied that the edits that were made by the BBC in her appearance on The Men Who Killed Kennedy led her to believe that the BBC was less than credible in representing her story, implying perhaps that the BBC clearly emphasized the conspiratorial aspects of her story when, in fact, she does not 
at least now in 2013, believe in a conspiracy of shooters. She was not happy that ultimately the BBC left only two minutes or so of her tapings in the documentary special after having spent an entire day with her on the topic. Hmm. Was she just upset about the minimal airtime she got? Or was there something important left out that she said, which changed the character of what was said? Well, she never elaborated in that interview. Despite this, and despite an obvious distaste for JFK assassination theories at that moment in her life, she seemed careful not to explicitly renounce things that she had said in the past, but instead offered a new reason why she was simply wrong that day, 25 years ago in the interview, and on the day of the assassination as well. That is, wrong in terms of where the shots came from. This was a story she was telling 50 years after the fact. Her story now was that she had possessed a lifelong hearing problem, a problem that prevented her from being able to discern the direction of sound, and that her husband could vouch for it. She met her husband while in the Peace Corps, which she joined not too long after the assassination, So basically implying that her husband could vouch on this topic all the way back to that time frame. She offered up that any time she heard a siren, she just couldn't tell from what direction it might be coming. Now, let's stop right here. Personally, I would not challenge this representation by Mrs. Woodward of her hearing condition, although some people find it to be dubious. In my later years, I myself have developed some level of difficulty discerning the direction from which sounds come from, so I can relate to what she is saying. But then again, I'm 60, and this only happened for me a few years ago. She was 22 at the time. I'm not a doctor. I'm just saying. But aside from that, there's no doubt she might have legitimately had this affliction at the moment of the assassination, all the way back then, 50 years ago. What's so curious about it, though, is why would she not have acknowledged the existence of it at the time of the assassination, and certainly some 25 years later during the Men Who Killed Kennedy documentary, if nothing more than to set the record straight? Why would she continue to make positive assertions around where she thought the shots might have come from, that is, the grassy knoll, why she would have made those statements some 25 years ago after the assassination, positively restating that she thought they had come from the grassy knoll, if she knowingly had this hearing condition at the time of the assassination. And if the edits were such that she did say it, but it just got edited out, Why then did she not just set the record straight in her later 2013 historical biography interview on the topic at the 6th Street Museum? It was the perfect venue to do so, and she just did not. It seems to be a thin argument, and perhaps even one that was born from some other pressure or challenge that comes with being this type of high-profile witness particularly one that has been subjected to some hateful or at least really unpleasant things being said to her and about her. 
Sadly, like most witnesses actuarially in these past 10 years, we've seen the vast majority of them pass away. Miss Woodward died in 2016, and so she no longer has the ability to clarify any of this. In her Sixth Street interview, she spoke of the hateful things and the hurtful things that people wrote and said about her. She didn't talk about the specifics, but I suspect she probably couldn't have satisfied anyone on either side of the argument. Once she touched that rail, she was electrified. There was no way to avoid it. I suspect she may have come under some considerable pressure when it came to adopting the official narrative, but it's hard to know. Maybe she was just misinterpreted the entire time. Still, I might go with a more simple answer, and that is that she is another witness that has had to succumb to the danger and the disillusionment that came along with taking an unpopular position on the assassination. She was not alone when it came to this phenomenon. She clearly did not, at least in her later years, believe in a conspiracy, and that may have tipped the scales for her given all the other danger factors the danger of maintaining the idea that there may have been a second gunman and that shots were fired from somewhere else other than the school book depository. Well, I've said enough on this, and I think it's time for you to decide. I'm going to read her Dallas Morning News article that appeared initially on Saturday the 22nd. Then we'll play a clip from her 1978 interview. And finally, We'll finish with some of her remarks from the Sixth Floor Museum, her interview in 2013, some 25 years later. Like I said, I think it's time for you to be the judge of what she said, but after listening to these readings and clips, I think my earlier comment about taking testimony as close as possible to the moment that the crime occurs, well, that's a comment that may resonate even more clearly with you now. Things change. Over time, they change. And over a lot of time, well, they can change a lot. Or maybe more accurately, people's view of things change. That subtle difference is important to keep in mind. Okay, here we go. Here is a transcription of her article appearing, as I said, in the Dallas Morning News on Saturday morning, November 23rd, the day after the assassination. The title of the article is Witness from the News Describes Assassination by Mary E. Woodward. Four of us from Women's News, Maggie Brown, Aurelia Alonzo, my roommate Ann Donaldson, and myself had decided to spend our lunch hour by going to see the president. We took our lunch along, some crackers and apples, and started walking down Houston Street. We decided to cross Elm and wait there on the grassy slope just east of the triple underpass, since there weren't very many people there and we could get a better view. We had been waiting about half an hour when the first motorcycle escorts came by, followed shortly by the president's car. The president was looking straight ahead, and we were afraid we would not get to see his face. But we started clapping and cheering, and both he and Mrs. Kennedy turned and smiled and waved directly at us, it seemed. Jackie was wearing a beautiful pink suit with a beret to match. Two of us, 
who had seen the president last during the final weeks of the 1960 campaign, remarked almost simultaneously how relaxed and robust he looked. As it turned out, we were almost certainly the last faces he noticed in the crowd. After acknowledging our cheers, he faced forward again, and suddenly there was a horrible, ear-shattering noise coming from behind us and a little to the right. My first reaction, and also my friend's, was that, as a joke, someone had backfired their car. Apparently, the driver and occupants of the president's car had the same impression, because instead of speeding up, the car came almost to a halt. Things are a little hazy from this point, but I don't believe anyone was hit with the first bullet. The president and Mrs. Kennedy turned and looked around as if they, too, didn't believe the noise was really coming from a gun. Then, after a moment's pause, there was another shot, and I saw the president start slumping in the car. This was followed rapidly by another shot. Mrs. Kennedy stood up in the car, turned halfway around, then fell on top of her husband's body. Not until this minute did it sink in what actually was happening. We had witnessed the assassination of the president. The cars behind stopped and several men, secret service men, I suppose, got out and started rushing forward, obstructing our view of the president's car. Then I started looking around at the stunned crowd. About 10 feet from where we were standing, a man and woman had thrown their small child to the ground and covered his body with theirs. Apparently, the bullets had whizzed directly over their heads. Next to us were two Negro women. One collapsed in the other's arms, weeping and uttering what everyone was thinking. They've shot him. It still seems like a horrible nightmare. It will be a real-life nightmare to haunt us all for a long time to come. As I mentioned earlier, Mary made herself available for an interview in 1988. The BBC was putting together a special documentary to be aired around the time of the 25th anniversary of the assassination. They interviewed Mary, and here is the clip. 25 years later, she was still clear that those shots seemed to have come from the knoll. They first of all took me to the office nurse and had me have a tranquilizer because I, they thought was somewhat hysterical. I think I was behaving quite rationally under the circumstances. But anyhow, I then sat down and wrote the story immediately and actually had completed the story before the news was absolutely confirmed that he was even dead. So the story was absolutely my own impressions. It was not from anything anyone had said or what I had read or heard. Some things I have often said I would hate to swear before a court of law or before God, but one thing I am totally positive of in my own mind is how many shots there were, and there were three shots. The second two shots were immediate. It was almost as if one were an echo of the other. They came so quickly. The sound of one did not cease until the second shot. With the second and third shots, I did see the president being hit. I literally saw his head explode. So uh, I felt that the shots had come, as I wrote in my article, from behind me and to my right, which would have been in the direction of the grassy knoll and the railroad overpass. After the first edition of the paper was printed on the morning of Saturday the 23rd, 
her story was pulled and edited, with the references removed that related to where the shots came from. And during her 1988 interview, some 25 years after the assassination, she expressed some thoughts about that, about why that editing may have happened. So listen carefully. The reason I want you to listen carefully, because right after that, we're going to fast forward another 25 years, some 50 years after the assassination, and listen to an alternative and more guarded narrative from Mary on why that story was pulled and edited. A narrative that 50 years after the assassination was astonishingly devoid of any personal opinion as to why, and certainly in contrast to what she said 25 years earlier in her BBC interview. So here is what she said in the BBC interview. Civic leaders, responsible people, whether it be the mayor, the managing editor, the paper, almost felt it a responsibility to kind of not rock the boat, perhaps. The neat answer was the version that came to be the most widely accepted, that there were three shots and they had all come from the school book depository building and they were all fired by Lee Harvey Oswald. In 2013, as I mentioned, Mary would engage in a biographical interview at the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas. She did this as part of the Living History program there, which is so rich and beautiful and which has given us so much information on the assassination history. It was conducted by Stephen Fagan, who was at the time the director of the program for the museum. He's now the director of the museum itself. It was a short three years later that Mary would pass after giving this interview. We are grateful for this rare and additional perspective that she now revealed, despite the contrary views she expressed that day, views that were not necessarily aligned with statements she had made earlier in her life. Let's take a few minutes and listen. So, so Anne certainly remembers you being the most uh, assertive of the group as far as knowing that the right, president was yeah, shot. I was, I had no doubt. Yeah. You went back to the news and someone gave you a tranquilizer. Yes. The answer to everything. Uh, and this was before you wrote the story. So yes. when, when you wrote the story, which was published in the Dallas Morning News, you were under the influence of a tranquilizer. I guess. Uh, I, I don't know how long it takes them to work. <laughs> I'm not really into that, but, uh, yeah, I... And, and such a remarkable eyewitness account because you were typing this up before you knew the president had died. Well, I, I knew he had died. Right, Nobody before had. the official announcement. Yeah, before the official announcement. Now, you mentioned something in here about where you think the shots came from. Tell us about that because that's become a point of controversy. Well, yes, this is what um, has troubled me ever since in various ways. But I said the shots sounded to have come from behind me and to my right, which would have been the grassy knoll. Now, first of all, I have a hearing problem I've had all my life, and my husband, anybody who knows, can tell you, if I hear a siren or I'm driving, I don't know where it is, I panic, I can't tell the direction of sound. I've also had a number of people, including my brother, who was an expert in firearms, say that the land there disturbs sound, but I knew that it had come from the back because I saw where it hit. But I don't know why I said that it sounded, because it, in my mind, that's what it had sounded like. But I knew it had been hit in the back. So that got me in trouble. 
and that every nut in the world wanted to get me as the I was called the dissenting witness. Right. And uh, I mean, that was actually a label given me, the dissenting witness. And I tried to correct that. And then they accused me of, oh, I mean, it's all kinds of Dallas Morning News had paid me off and, you know, all kinds of stories. It's it certainly haunted you. I know in lists that you find online and in books, you're consistently to this day listed among Grassy Knoll eyewitnesses who yes. felt the shots came from the Grassy Knoll. And and it actually it got worse because in December of 1963, you were interviewed by the FBI. Now, you remember when this interview occurred. You had gone to the hairdresser? Tell yes, us about that. yes. I had, well, my lunch hour, I went to, the, and I, you know, I'm this young kid, and I went to the hairdresser on my lunch hour, and I came back, and here at the Dallas Morning News, sitting out in front of my office, is, is somebody from the, I think, I may be a little mistaken, the offices, but like FBI, uh, Secret Service, CIA, <laughs> and they're all waiting to interview me, you know, this little nobody at the paper sitting out in a row to interview me. But thank goodness you had just gotten your hair done. Yes, thank goodness. I, although they didn't take a picture. <laughs> now, this, this FBI uh, report, which you didn't write, it was written by the agents who interviewed right. you. It's dated December 7th, and this is... Uh, intrigued researchers, particularly Mark Lane, made use of this, I think, shortly right. after it was done. And, and there's a segment I, that I want to mention that, that, is, that has become so controversial. Um, her first reaction was the shots had been fired from above uh, her head and from possibly behind her. Her next reaction was that the shots might have come from the overpass, which was to her right. And as you just described, it, it's just a matter of hearing and echoes and things right. like that. But Mark Lane, because of this statement, really pursued you, right? Oh, he pursued me literally for years. I mean, probably eight and ten years later. I was. I mean, I don't even know how he found me because that time I'd lived abroad, moved to New York, and he somehow could track me down. And I don't know whatever happened to Mark Lane. He must have died because I stopped. No, he's still him. around. Is he still around? <laughs> he is. He is. Mark Lane uh, was one of the first critical researchers of the assassination, wrote the best-selling book, Rush to Judgment, and uh, that's who we're talking about. You were also, later on, uh, contacted by Jim Garrison's office during his investigation in uh, New Orleans. He's another one that tried to get me for years to come. And you were re reluctant to talk to these folks. Oh, I was very reluctant, especially to talk to those that I thought were pursuing something that I didn't feel was right. Mm -hmm. And I certainly didn't want to have anything to do with Jim Garrison, who in my mind I had chalked up as a complete nut. Mm -hmm. So uh, Now, most people who have heard your name associated with the Kennedy assassination know you from a very famous British documentary called The Men Who Killed Kennedy. And I see the way you react when I mention that name. Um, it's a very brief segment, but but that segment is important because it does characterize you, as we've discussed, as a, a grassy knoll eyewitness. But there's another aspect of the story that, that is brought out in that appearance in The Men Who Killed Kennedy, saying that your Dallas Morning News story was pulled from circulation because of the way you described the shots. No, I don't, I don't know that that's true at all. It is true that it was pulled. But I have no idea. I, I don't really know the reason why. In fact, I didn't even know that for quite a long time because I'd just seen it in the first edition, mm -hmm. and I never checked further, and I didn't even realize that until some time later, and I don't know why they did. Do you? I think they might have gotten nervous about because here I was this, you know, untrained kid, and... Mm -hmm. So now, the story only ran that one time in the right. paper. Okay. Uh, do you regret doing The Men Who Killed Kennedy? That, uh, that documentary? Oh, yes, indeed, I do. 
it, it's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, people around the world have seen that, and that's it how they came to know It is constantly on television. You can find it almost every week. I live down in Mexico part of the year now, and they see it down there. I have almost every week somebody comes up to me, oh, I saw you on TV last night, you know, and I just cringe every time I hear it. When the filmmakers of that documentary approached you, you've mentioned to me before that you felt like they weren't, uh, well, first they of didn't all, fully describe the project. Well, you. first of all, I had this very mistaken impression, which I'm sure maybe a lot of you share, that the BBC was just above reproach. You know, I thought they were the gold standard. And when this, and then Nigel Turner, who produced it later, became president of the BBC. But they called me and they said this was the 25th anniversary. And they wanted to get, and people were dying off. So they wanted to get as many eyewitnesses or, or people involved, their stories as possible on film so that this would be a historical record. Well, I believe in history. I believe like what the museum is doing here. I'm very much in favor of, and I thought it sounded like a very good project, and it's being done by the BBC. And they came all the way up to well, Albany, New York. It's funny because I think they, I don't know where they thought we lived in Albany, but they called me and asked me how could they get there. And I started telling them they could get a rowboat and come up to Hudson. <laughs> but... Um, Anyhow, they finally did come up to Albany, and um, had a, they spent a whole day with me. And they, it was going to be this historical thing, and I was very pleased. I thought the BBC was the gold standard. Later on, I found out that somewhere afterwards, they got this tip about this, I don't know, the Corsican Mafia or something. And everything, my part that they'd spent a whole day was cut to a very much edited yeah. You're on, you're on screen about two minutes. Yeah. And it's all conspiratorial yeah, yes. statements. And I just die every time I see it. Mm. Did that did that appearance, and, and, and it was so widely disseminated, is that what prompted you to really shy away from doing interviews and appearances? That was part of it. And part of it was just the fact that when I see these awful things that were written about me, like, you know, I should be kicked out of journalism, and I was a liar, and, you know, I it, and I was very young then, and... It just really hurt me because I didn't feel I had done anything that deserved that. So uh, I just kept a low profile. You may be wondering why I began this series of episodes on the Knoll with the Mary Woodward story. Her testimony and evidence are neither the most sensational nor the most compelling that you will hear in this chapter of the story when it comes to conspiracy. And yet her story has critical elements in it that, as a juror, you have to keep in mind. She was young at the time. She was a newspaper reporter that wrote exactly what she saw within minutes of the event and even before President Kennedy was officially announced as dead. No one influenced her. The Dallas Morning News published this story the next morning for crying out loud. And then clearly retracted part of it in later editions to fit the official narrative that was developing. The lone gunman narrative that focused on the school book depository only as the source of the shots. She clearly was in the spotlight in a way that was different from most other witnesses. Her story within a day was heard around the world, and like it or not, her story did light the fire of information and the spread of suspicion that has been out there ever since. The quiet men that worked on the railroad, who saw and heard far more than she did, and you will hear their story, they didn't have a venue to print something in the paper at that very moment. 
Imagine if they had. And she was clear in what she thought she had heard, but she was also someone who had been hurt by it. And for what gain? That became evident over time. Ironically, she became less inclined to tell the story with the passing of time and the cessation of worry about consequences, exactly the opposite of most witnesses. Most witnesses were more willing in their later years to shed the fear that came with speaking out. But then again, the mainstream media was, for the most part, beholden to the official story of the government. I know that's my perspective on things. In the end, you may also discount all of this and say her final word is the only word, the word that she had come to understand and embrace another version of what was really true about that day. And her thoughts now, while disappointing to conspiracy theorists who wanted a stronger Mary on their side, are the final word. As a member of the jury, it's your turn to be the judge. But I think you should wait and hear all the evidence that will be coming your way in this set of episodes before you do that, before you even make a decision on what Mary said and how to interpret the changes in what she said that occurred over the 50-year history. Thank you for listening to episode 31 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 